listeners of the Queen of the Sciences podcast, we are coming to you with another bonus episode. Wow, exciting times that we're living in now. Um, the reason why is because there is suddenly a hot theological controversy. That is something I don't think we really expected to see in our uh, time of doing this podcast. But the big question now in the time of the global pandemic and social distancing and people having to stay home from church, church's closures, is virtual communion or other forms of uh, virtual engagement in the sacraments. Now, I should let you know that we actually have already recorded two episodes talking about all things related to Holy Communion that are coming out a little bit later this uh, this spring. So we're going to have to just jump right into the topic at hand without laying the foundation. But you can look forward to those coming to you in a few weeks' time. So what is it? What is virtual communion? All right. So there seems to be a kind of cluster of practices. The main one that's under dispute right now is basically the idea some congregations are meeting through um, internet, like Zoom or Skype um, conferencing in order for people to worship together. And then the idea is that you can confect a communion by having people at home set up their own bread and wine. We're going to just presume that they use actual bread and actual wine, um, though you have no way of knowing that for sure. And then the pastor will say the words of institution in the Zoom conference, and then it will somehow, you know, make the bread and wine at home become Holy Communion that people can then consume in the safety and privacy of their own homes. There are also some practices that I think are logically related to this. For example, I've heard of uh, the drive-in communion, which is the uh, pastor hands off to you a sealed pack of bread and wine that he has or she has already um, blessed and consecrated, but you can take it and then consume it at your leisure wherever you think is right. Another variant seems to be, um, this seems to be less common, but authorizing lay presidency at home. Like, just for now, you can consecrate your own Lord's Supper at home. You don't need a pastor at all. Maybe a kind of uh, anti-clerical move, supposedly, there. And um, and I think this is actually logically related to something else I'd like to address, which is pastors taking their uh, right of office to have private communions, which happens even outside of emergency circumstances. I've heard pastors say rather proudly that sometimes they they like to do this for a special occasion or a family reunion, which I think is a complete and total abuse of clerical power, but we'll get back to that. So anyway, so this is the whole nexus of can you do a sacrament via the internet? <laughs> yeah, and um, it's a, a kind of a surprising controversy. One interlocutor expressed extreme exasperation that we had to think theologically at all at this urgent <laughs> time of a pandemic. People are dying and you're arguing about the sacraments. How dare you? Well, uh, I suppose that if we don't know how to argue about theology as a rule at all, you know, then how much less will we be able to think theologically in a crisis or a pandemic such as we're experiencing? Yeah, well, and just the contempt there that theology is some sort of dilettantish game you play that has no purchase on reality, rather than theology actually being thinking through what the gospel is saying to us and means for us right now and in every moment of our lives. The the contempt really makes me bristle, I have to say. And I have to say also that in the Lutheran tradition, the very function of systematic or dogmatic theology is to test the practices of the church by the word of God, to test the practices of the church by the word of God, 
to assure their conformity to the word of God, which authorizes them and is the only source of their power and purpose. And so that's what theology does. And if you don't like that, you don't like critical thinking in matters of religion. Sorry, that's what we're here for, right, Sarah? <laughs> right. Well, if, if you don't like it, then you're a willing propagandist and you're you're on the wrong side of your Reformation history there. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't under, understand this this kind of thing at all. Well, OK, let, let's get right to the heart of it. So there are about a zillion things wrong with virtual communion. So let's let's take them off one by one. We'll just go back and forth. I would like to start with the simple fact that communion is not necessary at any given moment of your life. It is something the church must do and does do, but you can get by without it. Uh, people have certainly done so, and in extreme circumstances like war or in a situation of being a refugee or under extreme persecution, people have managed. Um, people used to manage quite fine an entire year without it. It's not good, but it can be done. Communion is not necessary for salvation. By contrast, the sacrament that is necessary for salvation is holy baptism. And I can't honestly fathom that anyone is going to argue for a virtual baptism where like the pastor would say the words of institution to you. I mean, sorry, would say the baptismal formula to you through Skype, and then you would pour water on yourself. Like, what is that? No one would even consider that. And yet that's the one sacrament that is necessary to salvation. So I think just being able to critically distinguish between what you have to have and what you don't have to have is a necessary starting point. Yeah, I would just, I, I basically agree with that, Sarah, but I would just comment, when you say you, you do not need communion for salvation, you mean you individually. You right, as an individual. Right. You At any given moment. Right. Right. But the, the you uh, in the plural, the collective you, when you gather as the church, 1 Corinthians 11, when you gather as the church, that's what the Lord's Supper is for. It's the the, the pronoun here is in the second person plural, you all, right? And so for us to be the church is to gather and to remember Jesus, not in any old way we dream up, but in precisely the way that Jesus commanded us to remember him, which is by the observance of the Lord's Supper. So for us to be the church, the Lord's Supper is necessary. That's what I would say. Thank you. That's a very important distinction, which then leads to the point that I think you particularly have emphasized in your writing on this, which is that by definition, Holy Communion is the gathering of the faithful. And I would add in a public setting, in a church setting where in principle, all the baptized Christians who believe are welcome to attend, not in a private setting. Why don't you expand a little bit more on that? Well, in the same context in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is appalled at all the folks in Corinth bringing in their own special dishes for their own special friends, shaming the poor in the process, and accusing them of failing to discern the Lord's body, which is in this sense refers to the, the organic solidarity in Jesus Christ that is mediated by the eating and drinking of his body and blood. Uh, in that 1 Corinthians 11 text, the bread of, that we break, is it not a koinonia in the body of Christ? The cup that we share, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? And in this respect, Paul rebukes these uh, partisan uh, uh, party spirit 
Corinthians and says, Don't you have homes to eat your supper in? Eat your supper at home and then come to the church for the service of Holy Communion. And so this whole idea, right, that that you can privatize uh, as something of a domestic spirituality, incorporate the Lord's Supper in this way into it, is wrongheaded from the very beginning, from the very outset. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by ways in which apparently obscure or irrelevant bits of scripture suddenly can become incredibly relevant. And I'm just struck by how incredibly relevant this piece of 1 Corinthians that I could never even imagine before, you know, like the the private home versus public gathering distinction and everyone having their own food. Who knew that that would actually become part of our lives? But I think it speaks very directly here. You cannot do this privately in your own home. It is meant to be for the physical gathering of the believers together who are actually physically consuming the same bread and wine together. Good. So we've nailed that one. Let's go on. Okay. Well, I would say a further point of this is, so why does it matter that we are physically gathered? So I think this is a really important point. One thing that constantly frustrates me about the way grace is talked about is that it is a gray grace. It's a big, colorless mass of God's generic goodness. Whereas I think what we see continually in the scripture and in Christian practice is that grace is colorful, distinctive, and each piece is different. They are not interchangeable with each other. Baptism and the Sacrament of the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of holy communion are not interchangeable with each other any more than the performance of the sacraments is interchangeable with the preaching of the word. They are different kinds of things, and that is actually addressing the complexity and reality of the lives we live in our bodies and in this world. So, for me, one of the key aspects here is there is actually a lot you can do successfully by the internet, and thank God for it. That is how we are managing to bring you this podcast. But one thing the internet cannot give you is the body. And what the sacraments are about is about bodiliness, physicality, things that cannot be duplicated or rendered in some other digital format. So for me, one of the reasons why the whole concept of virtual communion is so disturbing is because the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, is so intrinsically tied in its meaning to the Lord who is about to be betrayed and arrested and crucified in his body, and then three days later raised again in his body. The whole centrality of the meaning of the sacrament is the bodiliness of it, and therefore when we gather together, we gather in person in order to consume with our bodies, Christ's own body and blood and the bread and wine. The whole thing is about bodiliness, tangibility, physicality. It is not something that can be rendered. This specific sacrament, I'm not saying that nothing else can be or that we should have total silence, but that in the specific case, the reality is so centered on bodiliness that to try to do it by the internet is basically, I, I mean, to me, it's it's fundamentally docetic. It's saying Jesus virtually rose from the dead and was virtually crucified. You know, that that is the <laughs> claim of certain uh, heresies and rival religions that it didn't really happen. Our whole faith is founded on the real crucifixion of the real body of Jesus, which was then really raised from the dead in the body. So you are, uh, whatever you might say or believe about Jesus, if what you actually enact is virtual and not tangible physical communion, then you are in your action denying the very faith that your whole life is premised on. Yeah, that's really great, Sarah. You know, I'm I'm slowly coming to the conclusion that at least in our part of American Lutheranism, grace has become the great sublime idol uh, mm. of the of our denomination. 
And I, what I mean by that is you have an abstract idea of God's unconditional favor or unconditional love. And then you reify this idea. You turn it into the thing. And as like you said, after listening to sermons in the St. Paul area for two years, the, the meta message of all the sermons is God is not a problem. <laughs> Don't worry yeah. about God. God. God is not a problem. God is always good. God is always gracious. That's as old as Plato. The trouble with Plato's kind of God is that he's powerless and he's toothless and he's not able to stand against what's not good uh, and so forth. And so you get into the, all the spiritualizing dualisms where Plato's idea of the good is opposed to physicality, to matter, to the resistance of matter, to form. And all the, the spiritualizing interpretations of the Lord's Supper are just new iterations of what's fundamentally a platonic theology. God is good but not powerful. God is nice but never mean or, mean or angry, or something trite like that. And God can't do a damn thing for your sick and dying body. Right. God uh, is uh, up there somewhere smiling from a distance. And none of this pertains to the reality of the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we encounter the concrete person, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. That's what grace, the adjective grace modifies, this encounter with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is grace. Uh, grace for us, but possibly also grace against us when we eat without discerning the body. Right, absolutely. Well, let, let me use that as a segue then to say that I, I think this is this is an issue I, I haven't brought up before, but this idea of pastors being able to uh, consecrate their own private communions outside of the public setting of church. Uh, back when I was an intern, way back when, um, we had a couple of retreats for the interns and their supervising pastors. And um, and there was a communion that was held at the end of it. And, you know, I know that the, the instinct was like, you know, everything's better with communion. And, you know, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I like Holy Communion, too. It's important, uh, central piece of my, my faith and practice. But I was very disturbed by the fact that it was just us that we were gathered there. We were at like a um, some kind of other denominational retreat center. And nobody was invited to join us, even though they were other Christians there. And fundamentally, that because we were a group that had pastors in it, we could just do this and not tell anyone. It wasn't part of the public gathering of the faithful. And it really bothered me. So the next time yeah. when we had our second retreat of the year, um, I raised the issue um, and made myself extremely unpopular and everybody extremely awkward. And re they refused to talk about it and then just went through with it. And I have to say, it was like the guiltiest communion I ever took part of. <laughs> and and I actually went and I raced around the um the, this um, retreat center and invited everybody to come to our communion with us because I just thought it was wrong not to have it open to all the Christians there. And none of them came because they treated it like a private communion, which it basically was. And then I think it was even with like Wonder Bread and, you know, ju uh, wine in a plastic cup. I mean, it was just and the whole spirit of the thing was really wrong. And, you know, it was wrong because I was the one who made it wrong and enforced the issue. But I have to say, ever since then, I have been deeply disturbed and really opposed to pastors who make 
take their ordination as some sort of right and privilege to do communion whenever they think it's a good idea or that they think it would be helpful to somebody and not actually in the public context of their worship. And I think that's really the key thing. Lutherans have always understood, first of all, that the pastoral office is a public office. It is not something that is privately executed. And secondly, we have always been opposed to private communions. They were called private masses in the 16th century. And they were done for money and they were done for the dead and lots of things that we can, you know, easily scoff at now. But I don't think we're seeing the way in which this still happens now with private communions being confected by pastors who think they have the right to do it. I think that by definition, the sacraments are public events of all the faithful. You cannot have them privately without having the the body of Christ invited to be a part of it. And dad, you'll be glad to hear me say a word in favor of liturgical renewal, which is that it, I don't know entirely, but definitely uh, reduce the number of private baby baptisms on Saturdays, which used to be just standard practice, and put baptism back as part of the Sunday worship of the whole gathered community. I think also private baby baptisms or grown-up baptisms, for that matter, are totally wrong. They have to be part of the public communal worship. Yeah, just as liturgical renewal also made weekly Eucharist the standard form of worship in the uh, in the last generation. Uh, yeah. yeah, very good, Sarah. And how embarrassed some of these loosey-goosey pastors would be if you pointed out to them that they're treating their clerical powers just like a sacerdotal priest of the 16th century was criticized by the Reformation, having been given a magical power to confect the Eucharist or something like that. Right. Yeah. But let's say the solution is not lay presidency either. That is still making it private. It doesn't solve the problem and it doesn't like deal with clericalism or anything. That's ridiculous. Right. I think in emergency situations, you can deputize laity. Uh, and that I would not want to exclude utterly that possibility in the present circumstances. We don't know how long uh, this pandemic is going to keep us isolated. And as David Diego points out in an excellent little piece he put out on this, that surely the Lord is merciful. And uh, it is a good pastoral instinct in the Lutheran tradition that urgently wants to convey the means of grace in this time of great trial and suffering for our people. Uh, and so I think I want to acknowledge both of those things uh, and, and say uh, that every pastor— who takes their ordination vows seriously, has both the freedom and the responsibility to locally communicate word and sacrament. However, in conformity with their confessional commitments made in ordination and in accountability to the wider church. Well, you and David Diego are probably more generous spirited, spirited on this than I am. <laughs> but I will say, yes, I, I understand there is an honorable and right desire to convey the means of grace. But I guess my, my insistence is you have to actually be giving them the means of grace. And virtual communion is not the means of grace. It is something, but it is not the Lord's Supper. I quite agree. I, I, I quite agree that it is um, uh, an ersatz Lord's Supper. Uh, so that brings up this thing, a concept that many from Bishop Eaton in our church all the way down, have talked about a fast, fasting from the Eucharist. Now, this, this is easily misunderstood. Uh, it's not like I would ever advocate, oh, just stop going to communion for a while. You know, just <laughs> right, take a fast. Right. You know, I would never, ever in a million years dream of saying that. I think the point here is that the epidemic has taken uh, 
the possibility of a genuine Lord's Supper away from us, uh, and for the very good reasons that neighbor love forbids us publicly to gather and to share the cup and the loaf in ways that would expose the weakest and most vulnerable among us to this mysterious virus that is asymptomatic in more than 50% of the people who are contagious. So we have something being imposed upon us by the epidemic and then by the government's health policy. The fast is not something we dreamt up or volunteered. The fast is something that has been imposed upon us. And what's important for pastors to do in the light of this reality is to interpret what's happening theologically so that people have scriptural and confessional tools to understand a a human catastrophe in a prophetic way and then ultimately in a reconciling and healing way. Yeah, I think your point is really good that this is something that has been imposed upon us from without. And I think American culture in particular is highly resistant to that because we are a very boosterish, um, you know, can do uh, entrepreneurial culture that doesn't acknowledge or accept limits. And again, within a creaturely horizon, fine, you know, that's it's done a lot of good. It's done a lot of damage, but it's done a lot of good in the world and we can acknowledge that. But this is something different. This is something that has been put upon us. And so I'm disturbed by the impulse to just pretend like it's business as usual or, you know, it's not business as usual to do a virtual communion, but to say, well, we're just going to plow on as if nothing has changed. No, I, I think you're right that uh, the peculiarity of the circumstances invite a deeper theological discernment, not, not giving a, you know, a McDonald's version of the real thing in order to pretend like reality has not drastically altered for all of us. Uh, We'll see how this all plays out in the future, but I think down the line we need to have a podcast on the social nature of sinfulness and the eminently biblical theme of the wrath of God manifest in pestilence and plague and famine. Mm. These themes, which were very much alive as recently in American history, as Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address. I know that's 150-some years ago, but still, these themes played an extremely important role. And it always uh, amazes me that pastors and theologians who are so keen on social justice and want to claim the legacy of the prophets are simultaneously so utterly reluctant to claim the prophetic theme of the judgment of God manifesting itself in catastrophes. And I think that's a very challenging topic. It raises all sorts of questions of theodicy, but it's, I think, one that we should tackle somewhere down the line soon. Okay, and in the show notes for this episode, I'll link to the essay you wrote about this topic of virtual communion, because you do a really good job talking through the wrath of God and how, how not to do it wrong, which it's easy to do wrong and has been done wrong a lot. But I think you make some really profound points there. So we'll link that for readers to follow up on. I wanted to make a reference to another really excellent resource on this topic by uh, Dirk Lang. He's um, working with the LWF, used to be at Luther Seminary, and he um, did a statement that's on the LWF site. We'll also link to it about about um, 
virtual communion and, and Eucharistic fasting. And he has lots of good stuff. He calls out a piece of the uh, solid declaration of the formula of Concord that had completely forgotten about, which makes the excellent point that it's not the words of institution that are the magic words, but the obedience to the entire ma- mandate of the Lord, which includes the gathering of the faithful uh, that makes communion communion. But what I particularly was moved by in his essay, and I think you were too, Dad, is his emphasis on waiting as a good. And this, again, is very contrary to the nature of American society. Society, which cannot fathom waiting for anything under any circumstances, and the reader will infer all sorts of things from that. But um, the idea that it could be a good in itself, not in the obvious sense, but in the, uh, the greater uh, spiritual sense, to wait for communion until the time we can gather is actually a good and positive thing, that we can actually be blessed by it and grow from it, and that when we do finally gather, the joy will be so immense that we can gather again. That's something that's okay. It is worth waiting for and having to go without for a while isn't, you know, I don't know. It just it just sounds so much to me like, um, you know, the American insistence on like, I don't know, like snacking at all time. Like, don't wait for lunch. You know, if you feel the slightest twinge of hunger, have a Snickers bar right now. There's something about that that this is, I, I feel, is is tied up in this whole thing. And I think Dirk gives really wonderful reflections on waiting as a positive good. Yes. Pa- patient, patience is the eschatological virtue. Yeah, it is. It is so much of life, <laughs> all around. And very countercultural. It really is. It really is. Uh, waiting and patience are about as un-American as you can possibly get. So, <laughs> all right. Um, and finally, um, Dad, you mentioned one more uh, a, a statement by um, um, three professors from Trinity Seminary: Kleinhans, Schroeder, and Peterson. Do you want to just say a word about that quickly? Yeah, I think they did a very good job. Um, uh, unlike you and me, th- these three professors are professors at Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Columbus, Ohio, and they have a, a great institutional stake in, stake in preserving the peace in the ELCA. So their statement is is very ironic. I mean, it's very, very good in that way, it, unlike some of the more um, assertive statements you and I have made in this podcast they are trying very hard to reach out uh, to the well-meaning but not very clear-thinking advocates of virtual communion and explaining to them why it is such a bad idea. Uh, so I give them a lot of credit for that. And they also are in dialogue, like I tried to be in dialogue a little bit with Deanna Thompson a very credible mm-hmm. interlocutor and theologian, and Alan Jorgensen, another person I think highly of, a Canadian Lutheran theologian, who have supported mm-hmm. virtual communion. And this statement of, of theirs from Trinity Lutheran Seminary um, uh, acknowledges, like I want to acknowledge too, the pastoral impulses and intentions of these folks, uh, but I think also warning very emphatically that this is a really uh, bad idea with a lot of bad implications in all sorts of dimensions. Great, great. So we'll link to that too. Uh, so now to conclude, we're trying to keep this a, another short episode. I'd like to just say a number of things in favor of what you can do virtually and all the amazing things like thank God that this, uh, really thank God <laughs> that he held off this pandemic until we had the internet and Zoom and Skype and chat rooms and texting because it's made it tremendously more possible to endure this kind of isolation from each other. So one thing I really appreciated in uh, David Yego's remarks was that um, – 
actually, you can successfully convey the word of God through um, audio and visual means. Like, actually, that that fits. Unlike the sacraments, which have to have the tangible elements, it, the definition of the word of God is speech. And so it's something that is spoken and then heard. That actually works beautifully over the internet and through Skype and Zoom and so forth. And again, with a visual presentations in the form of like written things, you can successfully convey those in virtual formats. And so in that respect, um, I would say you know, again, thank God that we can connect this way. And indeed, it's wonderful that pastors are taking up um, all of these technologies to find ways to keep on preaching. I'm actually doing the same for my little congregation here in Tokyo. I'm making audio recordings of of my sermons and posting them on YouTube so that people can listen to them on a weekly basis. It's not the same as being there in person for sure, but it is still fundamentally, there's a, a, a continuity there that does not exist with the sacrament so that I can be speaking to them and proclaiming the word. They can listen to it. They can read it. And in my, my multilingual setting, being able to read as well as hear is a real asset. Um, so I think that's, that is a fantastic and amazing thing to be able to keep on doing. Right, and there you have the distinction again, once again, to return to the beginning between the individual and the community. The word is proclaimed to each person, given and shed. Also, as Luther would say, justifying faith is the faith that personally, individually says, for me, all this was for me. And that appropriates that personally in a fetus ex corde, a faith from the heart. But the sacrament is for us, for us together, for us as the community of Christ, the body of Christ, the organic solidarity created by the common eating and drinking from the one bread and the one cup. Yeah, beautifully said, beautifully said. And uh, there's some other cool things I've heard. For instance, a friend was telling me that in her congregation, um, you know, they have shut-ins who haven't been able to attend worship for years because of their frailty, and they've figured out how to dial them in so they can actually watch and in their way virtually, you know, participate in the worship of the community. No one had gone to the trouble of figuring out how to do that before. So the fact that that kind of virtual technology allows people who were, you know, in a sense, uh, I don't want to say excommunicated, but uh, absent from the community are allowed to be in again. That's fantastic. I mean, th- that's really the the way to go here is encouraging people to check on, check up on each other, have fellowship events virtually where you can actually see each other and talk to each other. Again, it's not the same as the in-person gathering, but you can successfully communicate that kind of care and catching up with each other in a way that um, would otherwise be entirely um, absent for us. I would say again, in my, in my own setting uh, in the last year, I've discerned for our congregation a call to grow deeper in our prayer life together. And we had started meeting for prayer at the beginning of this year. And of course, now it's entirely cut off. We cannot physically gather to pray. And there was something, even in the couple times we did it, that was uh, tremendously beautiful and blessing. And we already received fruits and answers to our prayers from the Holy Spirit in doing so. So in my own discernment about what to do here, I decided, well, you know, there are lots of options to com- continue to communicate worship, but I think at least in my setting, what I'm encouraging my people to do is to use this opportunity to grow in prayer, learn how to pray. This is something that they, you know, we we pray together as a community, but we also need to be able to pray alone, and I think that's harder and more awkward for a lot of people. So I'm giving them prayer services that they can do at home. It gives them guidelines. It gives them an opportunity to offer their own petitions, but, you know, it's 
to be um, extremely uh, tactless here and to paraphrase from Pope Leo X, since God has seen fit to give us a pandemic, let us enjoy it. So if we cannot... If we cannot gather in person to worship, then indeed, let us fast from the Lord's Supper, but let us learn how to pray better and do the kind of things, check up on each other via Zoom um, or the things that we can do and do them excellently in anticipation of when we can come together in person as a community and then celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper together. What a joyful day that will be. Yeah, It will be really, really joyful. I think enough said on this. Okay. Thanks for forbearing with us and our slight irascibility there, listeners, and uh, back to our regularly scheduled program next time. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.